Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Before we jump into today's fascinating uh, topic, uh, physicist Enrico Fermi, um, we have a couple of uh, matters of unfinished business from yesterday. You'll recall that we uh, talked about President Trump's reduction, removal of some 2 million acres from Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. He split those two monuments into five. We asked for your reaction. We had several guests on the program and we received a lot of response, as we usually do with public lands issues, uh, dear to the heart of uh, Utahns, of course. And uh, we received um, this from Tom in um, Vernal. Um, let's see, let me uh, pull this uh, this uh, comment uh, up here. Um, I've lost it now. Uh, here it is. There is a repeated mantra in all of this, repeated by President Trump. This is Tom and Vernal. The families and communities of Utah know and love this land. He's quoting President Trump. And you know uh, best how to conserve this land for many, many generations to come. Returning to uh, Tom and Vernal. The implication is, since it is in their best interest, that locals always act in the best interest of the land. If that was true, it uh, could be used to repudiate every conservation law ever passed. None would, uh, none of those laws would be necessary. The Dust Bowl never happened. The coal fields were properly conserving Appalachia. It's pure nonsense. Local politicians are more often driven by immediate uh, economic needs, not long-term sustainability of a culture. That's why we have all those ruined cultures in the now barren Bible lands, which once were forested with the uh, land of milk and honey. That's Tom and Vernal. We received this uh, from Michelle via our Access Utah Facebook page. She asks a question. Is this San Juan County Council member willing to go on record and state how much land will be going to oil and gas drilling or how much will be preserved for public use, not business? And finally, we have confirmation from Ethel Branch. You'll recall she is Attorney General of the Navajo Nation. We had her on the program. Uh, she said that uh, Navajo Nation, along with others, were going to sue over this action by President Trump, and she has uh, sent us a press release verifying that, that the Navajo Nation, Native American Rights Fund, representing the Hopi tribe, Pueblo of Zuni, and Ute Mountain Ute tribe, along with the Ute Indian tribe, are indeed taking legal action. Keep those responses coming, and you can uh, reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com on this or any topic. In 1942, a team at the University of Chicago achieved what no one had before, a nuclear chain reaction. At the forefront of this breakthrough stood Enrico Fermi, straddling the ages of classical physics uh, and quantum mechanics, equal to with theory and experiment. Fermi truly was the last man who knew everything, at least about physics. But he was also a complex figure who was uh, part of both the Italian Fascist Party and the Manhattan Project, and a less-than-ideal father and husband who nevertheless remained one of history's greatest mentors. There's a new biography out. It's called The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age. And we bring on the author, David N. Schwartz, who has a B.A. from Stanford University, Ph.D. from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's worked at the U.S. State Department and the Brookings Institution, Goldman Sachs as well, published widely on U.S. strategic nuclear weapons policy, NATO, and foreign policy. And interestingly, his father, Melvin Schwartz, shared the 1988 Nobel Prize in Physics. David Schwartz, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, so this is a fascinating, of course, well-timed. Um, just, uh, what, December 2nd, 1945, was the first uh, sustained nuclear reaction. Uh, Enrico Fermi, a fascinating uh, character. You, uh, you write that uh, 
your father at least, and you through your father, has you have something of a connection to Fermi. Yes, well, my father um, was uh, was one of three people who worked on an experiment that uh, discovered that uh, neutrinos come in different flavors. The neutrino is a, 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 a tiny subatomic particle that can pass through millions of miles of lead without bumping into anything. And its existence was first sort of explained by Enrico Fermi when he did a paper called A Tentative Theory of Beta Decay in 1933-34. And so all of the work on neutrinos and what later came to be known as the weak interaction, which governs how neutrinos behave, uh, stems from that initial paper. So my father always felt that Fermi was a, a very important influence in his life. Um, in fact, uh, early on in his career, he might have even been closer to Fermi, but um, because when he was a, a senior at Columbia, he approached uh, a, uh, his favorite physics professor, a fellow named Jack Steinberger, uh, who himself had been a, a student of Fermi's, and asked uh, Steinberger whether uh, he could stay on at Columbia for graduate school and study under under Steinberger. And Steinberger quite sensibly said, uh, it's probably better for you to go somewhere else for graduate school. I suggest you go to Chicago and study under Fermi. Well, my father, being the callow youth that he was, and he used to laugh about this later, said, um, well, if I do that, I'm going to lose all my graduate credits. And I don't want to do that, so I really want to stay at Columbia. And finally, Steinberger relented. So my father never worked directly for or with Fermi, but uh, he certainly was deeply influenced by him. And it, it turned out well, of course, in the end for your father, uh, in any case. Um, yes, it did. <laughs> I, was, yes. I was struck, uh, so staying on your father just for a second here, the work for which you won the Nobel Prize was in the early 60s, received the prize in the late 80s. Um, this tends to be a, a long time between the work and the and the prize. Well, you know, it, it generally does. It generally takes um, time for uh, discoveries and achievements to to uh, be uh, pro- properly appreciated and sort of set into context. In my father's case, with the with the discovery of, of what's called the muon neutrino, you know, it took a while for physicists to understand where where that was placed in the overall framework of particle physics what's called the standard model and it took a while for that to happen but eventually they they got around to seeing the importance of of the experiment and you know he was very fortunate in, in that respect so what was your goal in, in in writing this book well you know he was um fermi was one of the most significant physicists of the 20th century Physicists still revere him. Um, he was a, an immigrant who, who made enormous contributions to the United States, tremendously loyal to the United States. Uh, he, and, you know, he was just a, he had led a fascinating and dramatic life uh, in very turbulent times. And yet people don't know who he is today. Uh, the last, when I started out, the last English language biography of him was 1970. And when I realized that, I thought, well, this is astonishing. So much has happened um, since 1970 that reflects back on the work that Fermi did. And I thought, it's time for me to rectify this. I'd like to try and bring him to the the general public uh, to revitalize, um, you know, his legacy and, and, and make people aware of who he was and what he did. In his uh, time, he was very well known. In fact, he was uh, after his early death at the age of fifty-three. Uh, it was an outpouring of uh, 
uh, you know, eulogies and, and such. Why, why isn't he uh, better known today? Well, you know, I think part of it has to do with um, the fact that he didn't leave behind many letters or diaries. He didn't leave any diaries. His, you know, he was very reticent about his personal life. He tended to shun publicity. Uh, there's, you know, there's only one uh, recorded sort of PR photo op that he gave where he's standing at a blackboard. But generally, he, he, he didn't like a lot of publicity. He, liked, he felt much more comfortable in the classroom or in the lab with his colleagues. And I think that's part of it. Part of it is that he died at a time when uh, the rock star in the, in the physics world was Einstein, and there really weren't any other, other people like that. Uh, I guess Oppenheimer became a, a bit of a rock star, not, not only after the Manhattan Project, but also uh, during the hearings in 1954 about his loyalty. But I think he just, um, you know, and over time, people sort of forgot about, about what he had done. And uh, there, there are no lectures that he gave that are, that are filmed. You can't, it's very hard to find film of him on YouTube. Uh, there is some, some material, but very, very little. And, you know, in contrast to people uh, like, Feynman or or Stephen Hawking, who are very very who who were and are very adept at using public media to create a public profile. Fermi just wasn't wasn't didn't do that, and I think that explains a lot of it. Before we go back and pick up his earlier life and and in fact life after, I'd like to have you t- uh, tell me at this point about 1942. This uh, the, the University of Chicago a team achieved uh, what no man had before nuclear chain reaction the anniversary was december 2nd uh, just a few days right. days uh, days ago uh, tell me a little bit about this and what uh, the significance uh, was huge significance of course well it was hugely significant it was the first time that man had really released the energy of the atom in a sustained and controllable way it was and and you know most of the almost all the energy that we use all of the energy we used up to that particular moment comes in in some sense from the sun if you trace it back it all comes from the sun but this doesn't come from the sun atomic energy nuclear energy does not come from from the sun um, and so this was a, a real landmark in 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 human technology and 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 science uh, more you know more to the point i guess this was a very important step in the Manhattan Project, which was the project to use uranium and then plutonium to develop nuclear weapons in a race against Germany. And if this hadn't worked, that would have been a real problem for the Manhattan Project. Fortunately, it worked. Uh, and it proved this concept of a nuclear chain reaction, which underlies the, the, the way nuclear weapons work. The third point, which is also important for the Manhattan Project, is that nuclear reactors produce plutonium. Plutonium is, 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 is naturally occurring in the smallest of traces in the, in, on Earth, but it can be produced in a reactor. And the theory was that if uranium turned out not to be appropriate for using a nuclear weapon, well, perhaps plutonium would be. And it turned out that both of them were, and both of them were part of the, 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 the final effort in 1945. So the, the creation of that reactor really was a very, very important moment, not only in terms of 
opening up the nuclear age, but in terms of the very specific goals of the Manhattan Project. So here at the very dawn of the nuclear age, there, you know, the people could, it didn't take all that much imagination to look forward and see some of the possible implications. In fact, one of uh, Fermi's colleagues called it a black day for humanity, something like that. Yes, yes. Leo Zillard, uh, who, who worked with Fermi uh, for the two years uh, prior to this and was uh, instrumental in, 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 in the development of the nuclear reactor, said that to him, and he was very worried about it. I'm sure Fermi was, too. This was not a project that everyone jumped into with great enthusiasm. They understood the magnitude of what they were doing and the unprecedented destructiveness of these weapons, but they felt they had to do this because they knew that German scientists were doing this as well. And if Nazi Germany got to the finish line before the United States did, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that the Germans would use nuclear weapons against western cities, perhaps London, perhaps New York, perhaps Moscow, which, with which they were fighting a war. And so uh, there was real pressure to, to do this before the Germans did. And I think, but I think they really understood the magnitude of what they were getting themselves into, and, um, and the conflict, the inner conflict, was clear. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, much more. Enrico Fermi is the subject of the book. The book is uh, titled The Last Man Who Knew Everything. The author is David Schwartz, and uh, the uh, biography is uh, well-timed in its publication date. Uh, December 2nd, 1942 was the date of the uh, first nuclear chain reaction, University of Chicago, a team uh, headed by Enrico Fermi. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about, uh, and David Schwartz, you write in the book uh, about circumstance, that uh, some scientists feel like science is separate from the man. Why should we have a biography of the impersonal life of the man? You say no, that's, uh, circumstances are very important. And I want to talk a little bit about this as well when we, when we come back. Uh, this is a quotation from a review of the book, George Church. It says, Enrico Fermi was part of a great brain drain from pre-World War II Axis nations, when ideology overwhelmed the search for truth and even self-interest. He goes on to say we don't want that to happen in America, uh, part of those uh, circumstances. And, of course, Fermi came out of, escaped from Mussolini-led uh, fascist uh, Italy. More on Enrico Fermi following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. Next time on Living on Earth, that tail-wagging, adoring companion of yours can help you live longer. And we found that the owners do pointing dogs and retriever dogs, such as the golden retriever or labrador retriever. They had the lowest risk of cardiovascular disease. Dogs and Human Health. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, my name is Brian from Portland, Oregon. I love listening to Bullseye when there's someone on whose work I'm familiar with because I always learn something new about them. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, J.K. Simmons of Whiplash, Spider-Man, and those insurance commercials. Plus, the great stand-up comedian Solomon Giorgio. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with David Schwartz. He's author of a fascinating new biography of Enrico Fermi. It's called The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age. 
Um, and uh, you're welcome to join this conversation. If you have a question or comment, upraxcess at gmail.com is our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Before we uh, take a look at the young Enrico Fermi, David Schwartz, I want to have you talk uh, about the the picture on the on the book jacket. It's, uh, it's, it's very evocative. Uh, maybe describe it and then tell me why 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 you chose your team chose this. Uh, well, um, just to describe it, it's a it's a picture. It's a photograph of of Fermi running towards a photographer on a beach. He's in uh, casual clothes and he's racing, and there are a group of people behind him, and he's racing toward the camera. It's on, taken on a beach uh, on Lake Michigan, actually. And I think it's taken uh, during the 1942-43. Uh, no one's really quite sure exactly when it was taken. It was taken by one of his uh, great uh, uh, colleagues, uh, Leona Marshall, during, uh, during the time they worked together. Uh, and the reason I chose it was very straightforward. I wanted the book to be about Fermi, the whole person, I didn't want it to be simply about Fermi, the scientist. And I wanted to avoid Fermi in a lab coat or Fermi in, a, uh, you know, behind, in front of some uh, physics equipment. I, I wanted it to capture a little bit more of his personality. He was an extraordinarily competitive person, loved the outdoors, always w- was, was taking time on weekends to invite his colleagues out either to the beach or to the mountains or for a picnic. Uh, he was he was an outdoorsman. He was competitive, and he loved to be with his colleagues. and And I think that photograph uh, captures that in my mind, and that's why I chose it for the front front cover. One of his talents seemed to be he was a he was he was a good leader. He inspired people. Yes, he was um, he was truly inspirational, and I think it's partly because he had this this absolute confidence in his own ability to understand and solve whatever problems came his way. And he conveyed that confidence to other people. And he also loved teaching other people and the people around him and was, gave them the confidence that they could understand what he understood. Uh, his way of understanding things involved explaining it to other people. It was part of the process of understanding for him. And I think people really appreciated that. He was also... He wasn't. He had no pretensions about himself. He didn't carry himself as hair professor. He was a um, he was a Nobel laureate. By the time he came to the United States, he was a legend in physics, and yet he was incredibly approachable. Door always open. Uh, always willing to talk to students and uh, colleagues about problems that they had. I think he he really inspired uh, a great deal of affection as well as admiration. Um, in it during his lifetime. I want to talk about this. With, we, I teased uh, before the break uh, this idea that you write in the book that uh, y- you you can't separate the personal life from the science and that uh, individual circumstances are crucial. Um, and that's uh, you know illustrated very uh, starkly by the fact that Fermi was coming of age and uh, becoming famous, um, doing a lot of great science as Mussolini came to power. Well, that's true. It's you know, as Mussolini came to power, he was faced with the dilemma of whether to to work under a fascist government or whether to leave. Um, and I think for the first years, he worked under the fascist government, and most Italians uh, thought that Mussolini was doing a pretty good job. He uh, 
he brought order to a country that was on the brink of civil war. But as the uh, as the fascist regime progressed and got uglier and uglier, Fermi certainly saw that side and was was caught in this bind whether to continue working there or not. He had come to the United States in 1930 and again several times during the 30s and fell in love with the United States and really wanted to come here. But his wife decided that she really didn't want to leave at all. She she loved Rome and didn't like the United States. And it was only in 1938 after Mussolini passed a series of, of anti-Semitic laws that would have affected her because she was Jewish that they decided to leave. But you know, so that's certainly one area of cir- where the circumstances of his life were were crucial, but even to his science itself, he you know the year night he was born during this period of tremendous ferment in 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 physics. It was the years when quantum theory was being built. 1925 was a crucial year, and I talk about that a bit in the book. A year where Werner Heisenberg and Wolfgang Pauli and Erwin Schrödinger and Paul Dirac all made huge contributions to quantum theory, and Fermi was part of that process and made his own contributions as well. If Fermi had been born in the mid-1800s, who knows what what he would have done, but we wouldn't know him for being one of the fathers of the nuclear age. Uh, If he had been born, let's say, 20 years ago, would he be on an experiment at CERN with two or 3,000 other people? Would he shine the way he shone in the 1920s and 30s? We just don't know, but these are interesting questions. And the fact that he was born when he was born um, presented these conflicts, uh, these inner conflicts with the fascist regime and political conflicts, but also the, the opportunities that science presented him because it was this amazing time in physics. Tell me a bit about his uh, his early work. He he won uh, for maybe start with uh, what did he win the win the Nobel Prize for? Well, he won the Nobel Prize for a series of experiments that he did in 1934, which uh, w- where he bombarded various elements with uh, with a subatomic particle called the neutron, which is a, a massive neutral particle inside the the proton, and you can they, you can get radioactive substances that emit neutrons, and he. He used those neutrons to see if he could create radioactive elements artificially. And he discovered, much to everyone's surprise, that if you slow the neutrons down before they hit their target, the radioactivity that gets produced is much greater. So you pass a neutron through something like water, and the radioactive radioactivity of the element uh, that it hits is, is much greater. Now, that turns out to be the principle behind the nuclear reactor, where neutrons get slowed down between uh, one atom and another so that uh, they can have more of an impact, more of an effect. And uh, that was a very important discovery. He thought, in the process of doing this, when he hit uranium atoms with neutrons, he thought that he was creating elements that were heavier than the uranium atom it turned out that that was wrong. What he was doing was splitting the uranium atom. But the experimental setup that he was using it wasn't designed to, to show that, and in fact, inadvertently blocked that realization. Uh, that realization was only made by Germans in late 1938, and Fermi always thought of himself from then on as the man who missed fission because he, he was doing it in 1934, but he, uh, he missed it. 
and didn't understand what he was doing. You know, that's one of, of two or three of his really great, great um, scientific achievements. Yeah, it's interesting. I was fascinated by that, the, the fact that he missed that. I guess that's just how science works. Sometimes you hit, sometimes you miss. And you're... Well, they used, to, they used to call him Il Papa, which is the Pope, um, because he was supposed to be infallible. But this is at least one area where he was not infallible and where he did make mistakes. You know, and everyone's human. Fermi, Fermi was a human being and uh, made a couple of, of fairly large mistakes in his life. This was, this was one of them. Um, and um yeah he was he was a human being what did he think about that uh, title uh, well pope. he found it he found it amusing and i think he he enjoyed it while he was uh while while he was uh, in rome and you know he used he used to to joke about it um there was a, a lecture he gave uh, after the war when uh, they were discussing the possibility of 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 creating hydrogen bombs and he was scientifically a skeptic and delivered a lecture that was reasonably skeptical about the, the physics of the hydrogen bomb. And at the end of, of it, he said, this may be a case where the Pope is, is playing the role of the devil's advocate. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he, enjoyed, uh, he enjoyed calling himself that, but never took that very seriously. Mm. Uh, he, you write that he, did he go to university in, in Rome? Yes, he went to, uh, no, he did not go to university in Rome. He went to university in Pisa. He went to two schools in Pisa. One was an extremely selective school, uh, very, very hard to get into. That was the most prestigious kind of academic program in Italy, and it still is today. It's called the Scuola Normale Superiore. Uh, the other was the University of Pisa, which had a much uh, more rigorous physics program. So students at the Scuola Normale cross-register with the uh, University of Pisa and generally get degrees at, at both institutions. So he, he did work in both places. You're right that at a certain point, um, he'd, he'd learned all there was to learn about physics that, that was being taught there, so he embarked upon, he, he had to learn himself, had to create his own curriculum, I guess. Absolutely. He... he when he got to uh, to Pisa in in uh, 1918, there was nothing that the physics professors there could teach him. They didn't really follow the new developments in relativity theory or quantum theory. They were uh, old school physicists, and it's one of the reasons why Italian physics at that time was not particularly well known. It, it's the mathematicians were the best in, in the world, uh, interestingly enough, but the physicists were not, and Fermi was stuck in the library, uh, you know, having to learn this on his own. Now, he was very, he loved learning stuff on his own, and much of his, his classical physics knowledge came from studying books on his own. Uh, but, yes, he was a prodigy, and when he got to the university, they, just, they understood that, and they let him do what he needed to do to, to brush up on, on theory, on, on relativity theory and quantum theory. And uh, he used to give lectures on relativity theory, for the professors in the physics department. This, this might have uh, led him or helped him develop what you, quoting from the book, you say during the period in which he laid down his inspiring foundation, he also developed a unique way of thinking about problems that allowed him to achieve what he did and inspire those around him. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, his unique well, way of thinking through problems. Well, you know, he had, uh, he had an ability to strip problems down to their essentials. Uh, and he, he had an instinct 
which I think came from the years and years of studying and, and, and synthesis, to strip away the extraneous uh, issues and focus on the, the deepest, most interesting part of a problem, and then use fairly straightforward techniques to solve it. Um, and he also loved using tools from one, dis- from one area of physics to solve problems in other areas of physics, and two of his later achievements are examples of that. I think he also had this, this as part of this analytical framework, he developed a way of thinking that's, that's I think we call today the Fermi problem. Um, and the classic Fermi problem that you may have heard of is the question, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? And you know the way he thought about it, you'd almost always get down to uh, uh, an estimate that was roughly, roughly accurate within an order of magnitude. And the way you do the piano tuner problem is you figure how many people are there in Chicago and how many households does that equate to, you know, call it four people per household. And then you, have, you, you make an assumption about how many households do you think own pianos, and, you know, it might be 2%, it might be 5%, it's certainly not 50%. Um, and then you make an assumption about how often a piano needs to get tuned in a year, and you make an assumption, of, and then you make an assumption about how many pianos a piano tuner can actually tune in a day, and you do a little bit of back of the envelope math, and the number you always come up with, you know, whatever your your reasonable assumptions are, is somewhere between 100 and 200 piano tuners, which is sort of intuitive. You know, it sort of feels right. You know, there are not five piano tuners in Chicago. And you know that there are not 100,000 piano tuners in Chicago. It turns out that it's somewhere between 100 and 200. And that way of structuring a problem allows you to get to a, a reasonable estimate of the answer very, very quickly. And then if it's worth going into much greater detail, then you, you, you go into greater detail. And if you're getting answers that are way off your initial estimate, you, you, you might go back and think, well, I might have done something wrong in those calculations. You know, the Fermi problem that has application, of course, beyond physics. In fact, uh, as you as you were saying that, it, I, it triggered a memory. I, I learned th- this process in business school and uh, had forgotten that Fermi's name is attached to this. That's, that's absolutely right. And, in fact, I would guess that uh, when you applied to business school, you may have been asked a question that uh, resembled a Fermi problem. I know um, when uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs, uh, recruiters at Goldman Sachs used to ask Fermi, Fermi problem types of questions, and um, and just to see how you think. And it's it's a very clear and logical way of solving a problem when you don't have any a priori information, and um, and it usually comes out with a uh, reasonably accurate answer. Mm. And you know, if you want it, if you want more accuracy, then you, you work harder at it. But if you only need to know the answer to within an order of magnitude, it's just fine. It's interesting, as, as you see, those reading about how you described Fermi's process. You know, there's rigor there. You have to have basic knowledge. You uh, there's a process, but but also that's infused with genius. There are leaps of imagination. It's it's all connected. It's all bound up. Yes, it is, and I think this issue of of using tools in, that were developed in one area to solve problems in another area is an example of of where he really he he really was able to do things that other people weren't able to do. Uh, he spent a long time 
understanding Dirac's work on electrodynamics, which was breakthrough and changed physics forever. And he used that, and, and that work was designed to try to understand uh, the way light and matter interact with each other, electrodynamics. And uh, so, the, so Dirac created the field of quantum electrodynamics. Fermi used the concepts of quantum electrodynamics to solve another problem, which was uh, the problem of, this, of beta decay, which is a radioactive process that looks nothing like electrodynamics. Um, and he used the, the, the quantum field idea that Dirac had developed for th that other purpose and came up with a brilliant paper that turns out to have led to dozens and dozens of Nobel Prizes over the years. So um, it's a very interesting way that Fermi uh, had of, of taking a, a, a method you used in one area and applying it in a completely different area and getting very, very exciting results. Uh, why the title, The Last Man Who Knew Everything? Um, you know, he, he, wasn't, he didn't know everything about everything, but he really did know everything about physics. He was the last man, I think, who was able to integrate all of physics into one sort of, sort of perspective. He understood physics as an integrated whole. He understood all the sub-disciplines of physics and contributed to every last one of them. He also was a master at both theory and experiment. But it was a time when you could do that. Um, it was unique, but you could do that. If you were a Fermi, you could do that. Uh, the world has changed so much since, since Fermi's day. The sub-disciplines are so much bigger and so much more complicated. And real mastery of those sub-disciplines takes a lifetime um, just for, for one of those sub-disciplines, say particle physics or astrophysics or you know, condensed matter physics. Uh, also, the difference between experiment and theory is so great now. Experiments take years and years and years to do, and there are 2,000 or 3,000 people in some of these experiments. And there's just no way that an experimentalist can step back from that and do something in theory uh, in, a, in a really serious and rigorous way. So I think the gap between theory and experiment, uh, not the gap between theory and experiment, but the gap between the people who do theory and the people who do experiment is, is wider than it, than it was in Fermi's day. And the, the, the complexity of the, of the, of the sub-disciplines is, is much greater. So Fermi really was the last one who had this overall knowledge of all of physics and i think he's probably the last person who will be able to do that i mean there may there i may be wrong it would be it would be wonderful if i'm wrong um but i don't think so let's take another break uh we're talking with david schwartz he's author of a new biography of enrico fermi it's called the last man who knew everything the life and times of enrico fermi father of the nuclear age and uh, there's a uh, this month, in fact, is a, uh, a milestone anniversary. In 1942, a team at the University of Chicago achieved what no one had before, a nuclear chain reaction. At the forefront of that breakthrough stood Enrico Fermi. We're talking about him on the program today. When we come back, I want to talk about Fermi's uh, dramatic escape from fascist uh, Italy via the Nobel Prize Award. Um, and uh, talk about the, his connection with the Manhattan Project, a bit more about his personal life, and much more to come with David Schwartz following this break. 
Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners and Moab Area Travel Council, whose support of tourism, events, and recreation in Grand County promotes and protects the natural beauty for visitors from across the state of Utah. Information available online at discovermoab.com. Want to get to know yourself better? Shh. Try being very, very quiet. In the silence you meet yourself. It could be beautiful, but it could also be maybe even sometimes terrifying. Find out how silence can improve our lives next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Join us Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, it's Francis Lamb. This week, it's how they feast in the country of Georgia. It's a buffet on steroids with singing and toasting and dozens of plates of food all stacked up. And then we have a story about an invitation that may bring a tear to your eye. That's The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters from APM. Join us Sunday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with David Schwartz, the author of The Last Man Who Knew Everything. It's a new biography of Enrico Fermi, sometimes called the father of the nuclear age. And uh, we're talking about his fascinating life on the program uh, today. You're welcome to join us in this conversation. UPRAccess at gmail.com is our email. UPRAccess at uh, gmail.com. So, David Schwartz, I wonder if you could uh, tell me about this uh, dramatic escape from uh, fascist uh, Italy, 1938. Uh, uh, the I think the secret police are keeping an eye on him. I, I guess what they they don't want uh, prominent scientists to leave. That's exactly right. They he had been a he had been a target of the secret police uh, surveillance since 19, uh, 1932, I think. Um, you know, it was it wasn't heavy-handed surveillance, but they kept tabs on him, and you know, particularly when he left. I mean, it was convenient for for them that he always left his wife behind. She didn't want to come to the United States after 1930, so he would always leave her behind, so they always expected him to come back. In the summer of 1938, they began to pass uh, laws against the Jewish population in Italy, and that affected uh, his wife. And um, so finally, he was able to persuade her that they should leave, and they had made the decision that they should leave uh, sometime in, in, in January or February of 39, and he actually, uh, to avoid uh, getting his mail uh, picked up by the secret police, he and his wife uh, traveled into the Alps and dropped letters, of, um, of, uh, letters to five U.S. universities asking whether he might have a position at, at one of them. And he got the answer back, uh, I think all five said, of course, but he decided that he was going to accept the position at Columbia. And the story that he told the, anyone who, who asked was that he was going there for a six-month uh, sabbatical and would, would be back. And, and then what happened was, in October of 1938, uh, Niels Bohr, the great uh, Danish physicist, approached him at a, uh, at a reception in Copenhagen after a conference and said, pulled him aside and said, listen, if you were offered the Nobel Prize, would you be able to accept it? And the reason this question was asked was because Hitler had forbidden German scientists, uh, any Germans, from accepting the Nobel Prize for a whole load of reasons. And 
but Mussolini had not, and Fermi knew that Mussolini would be very pleased if, you know, Italy's most prominent scientist won a Nobel Prize. So he said, "Of course, I'll be able to accept it." And that change—that—that's the only time anyone has ever been given a hint that they were going to be getting a Nobel Prize. And Fermi used that hint to begin to accelerate the planning. So he decided with his wife that they would take the two kids with them to Stockholm. They'd take a, a nanny, and they would take a, a small amount of, of clothing uh, through Germany, uh, on a train through Germany into Stockholm uh, to get the prize, and then they would go from Stockholm to England and then to the United States and end up at, at Columbia. And it was fairly dramatic. Um, and you know when they when they hit the border in in Germany, uh, you know there was a moment when all the, when when the border guards couldn't find uh, the visas and they were very worried about that. But they passed through. Uh, one of the things that that Laura did uh, before that trip was she converted to Catholicism in a formal ceremony so that her passport wouldn't be stamped with a J. And that would have raised all the alarm bells in in Germany if she had uh, presented a Jewish passport there. So she was um, the, the the four of them escaped and got to the United States, and uh, and of course when the Italians realized what happened, they were furious. But there was really very little they could do about it. Um, it was a very dramatic uh, way of getting out of there. And then he arrives in the United States, and two weeks later he gets the news that the uranium atom has been split doing the exact same experiments that he was doing in Rome in 1934. How dramatic is that? <laughs> and, uh, and then he, you know, and, and, you know, to his great credit, he uh, accepted that he had made a mistake and learned all about the experiment, all about the theory behind it that had been developed by a woman named Lisa Meitner and her nephew Otto Frisch and presented that news to a conference in Washington D.C. two weeks later, so you know he was he was uh, it was a very dramatic time, and it was exactly at that moment when Leo Zillard, who was staying at the same hotel that the Fermis were staying at, came up to Fermi and said, "You know, this could be this this splitting of the uranium atom could be the thing that initiates a chain reaction that could release explosive energy, and we should really be looking into that before the Germans do." And so this was a tremendously uh, exciting, uh, troubling, dramatic time in uh, in Fermi's life and in in you know in world history, really. As I was reading through all of this, um, I I was my mind immediately went to this intersection between politics and, and science, and and the fact that the very ideologies in these fascist nations produced a brain drain, which uh, went to the West, and then the, that ended up. Helping the West in the war. That's exactly right. You know, it's it's a great example of the kind of impact that immigrants have had from time to time in our country's national life. Uh, these were people who immigrated from the United States, came here from from Europe. They came here. They were loyal to this country, and they 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 worked to save this country during a moment of real peril. Fermi's position was, was almost unique in this respect because most of the Germans who came came before, well before the war and had become American citizens by the time the war broke out in December 1941, Fermi had not become an American citizen by that time. 
So he was an enemy alien. You've got to think about that. He was an enemy alien at the heart of the Manhattan Project. And it was an extraordinary position to be in. It's really one of the most bizarre things about the whole Manhattan Project, that one of the most central scientists in the program spent a bit of time as an enemy alien <laughs> before he became a naturalized citizen. So um, it, it just, it's, it's a tribute to the kind of impact that immigrants have had in our national life uh, in our history. Later on, he uh, I think he testified in, in, in behalf of Oppenheimer when, when Oppenheimer's loyalties were questioned. That's exactly right. You know, he, he and Oppenheimer had a, a close professional relationship. They were not personal friends. They were very, very different people. And, you know, Fermi was very much a meat-and-potatoes kind of guy, and, uh, and Oppenheimer was a very sophisticated, very erudite, uh, scholastic kind of man. Uh, the two very, very different personalities. But um, they had huge respect for each other. And when, when Oppenheimer was brought up on charges of disloyalty, Fermi felt that that was wrong and wanted to support Oppenheimer in any way he could. And so he appeared before the, the panel that was uh, conducting hearings on Oppenheimer's loyalty and supported Oppenheimer uh, quite aggressively during that period of time. Uh, the, the key issue that, uh, that Fermi had insight into was whether Oppenheimer had uh, tried to block work on the hydrogen bomb. And uh, this goes back to a debate in 1949 when uh, the science advisors to the Atomic Energy Commission were asked whether the United States should embark on a crash program for the hydrogen bomb. And Fermi, along with all the other scientists on the panel said no it's probably not going to work anyway there were still scientific doubts about it and it's also a weapon of unlimited destructive power and we shouldn't be doing it and Fermi put his signature to a to a document along with uh, his friend Isidore Rabi um, saying that it was essentially an evil and we shouldn't go forward with it so Fermi's point was it wasn't Oppenheimer who was blocking the hydrogen bomb at that time all the scientists agreed that it didn't seem to make sense. Well, Truman overrode that, and in 1951 or 52, I've forgotten exactly when, um, uh, Teller and uh, Edward Teller and Stan Ulam, who were two scientists at Los Alamos, came up with an idea that solved all the technical problems. But, um, but yes, he, so Fermi did feel strongly that it was unjust for Oppenheimer to be brought up on these charges and, and supported him. And then, of course, these these problems remain today very 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 stark, right? To North Korea, Iran, etc. Um, the, the scientists involved we could see the the massive destructive potential, but the governments, I guess, are are going to want the uh, the weapons because uh, you know our nation has to have it if if any other nation is going to get it. Well, I think I think you're right, and I think that um, you know Fermi would would be would not be surprised, but he'd be disappointed at the way. The nuclear arms race has has developed over the years. You know, he wasn't a very he he tried to stay out of politics. He gave his advice uh, privately and in confidence and in councils of government. But he he wasn't one to sort of sign a petition against uh, war or against the bomb or any anything like that. I think he felt, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, that the spread of nuclear weapons. Could, it would be very, very difficult to control. He also felt that uh, 
human nature being what it is, the odds are that they would eventually be used again. And I think we're very, very lucky that they haven't been used. Um, and he'd be, I think, fairly alarmed at the, the, the way the situation that we face today um, with um, nuclear rhetoric being thrown around and, uh, and uh, testing being done of, of these ballistic missiles. And, um, you know, I don't know what his advice would be. He was always much more comfortable giving advice about science and technology matters than he was about, about politics. He was unusual in that respect because I think many scientists uh, felt uh, a moral obligation to take strong public stands on political issues. And, you know, a whole group of scientists involved with the Manhattan Project created the, the, you know, the, the, the organization of the atomic scientists out of which came the uh, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is still a, uh, a, a journal today that is a platform for uh, debate on, on the politics of, uh, of, of these weapons. And the Federation of American Scientists also takes an active role in politics and science. But, um, but Fermi was a little bit more circumspect about that. He felt his expertise was in, in physics. And, um, you know, if you wanted to talk to him about physics, he would give you all sorts of advice. But at, toward, at the end of his, his life, he, 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 he didn't re-up uh, for these scientific councils. He said, I don't trust my, my, uh, my judgments in these areas. We just have about three minutes left. I want to reserve some time for his legacy. But uh, first of all, very briefly, uh, what was his involvement in the Manhattan Project? Well, the Manhattan Project, he, he was he, he's, he was the key man in the in the uh, creation of the nuclear chain reaction. He then um, helped to uh, design and and um, and oper- and, uh, and helped to sort of sort out the problems with the big reactors. In, um, in Hanford, Washington, that created plutonium, and there was a big problem there that he hadn't anticipated, and he, he, he and his colleagues figured out what that was and sorted that out. And then he was brought to Los Alamos to be advisor and counsel to Oppenheimer and to um, have his own little division that sorted out uh, difficult problems that other people couldn't sort out. So th- that was his role in the Manhattan Project. He didn't design the bomb. He didn't build the bomb, but um, he did a lot of very, very important things uh, in the process of the development of the bomb. Finally, uh, just a couple of minutes, uh, what is Enrico Fermi's legacy? Well, his legacy, I think, in the, uh, in the scientific field, he, created the, the, he basically created the agenda for modern physics for the next 50 years. Wherever you go in physics, for the 50 years after he died, you see Fermi's um, inspiration. And, you know, the things that Fermi did were, you know, directly guided people in all the areas of physics over the next 50 years. In, um, in terms of, of the way we live today, nuclear reactors, every nuclear reactor in the world traces its lineage back to that experiment in Chicago 75 years ago. Now, that's, you know, has a good side and a bad side. Nuclear reactors provide 20% of the electric power in the United States, but there have been accidents that have been very dangerous. Um, nuclear reactors also provide the medical isotopes for all sorts of cancer treatments and diagnoses. So there's a, there's a, there's a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. The legacy of nuclear weapons is obviously um, you know, a very terrible legacy, and you know, we live with that every day. Um, on the other hand, it, it probably prevented 
the United States and the Soviet Union from going to war during the height of the Cold War. Uh, the fact that both sides had these weapons of enormous destructive power gave pause when, it, when you know, at the height of crises, you know, political leaders on both sides stepped back. And I think that was an important positive thing. But I don't want to oversell the positive aspects of nuclear weapons because there are very few of them. Um, so I think those are the legacies. And he, of course, oh, the, the final legacy is he trained a whole generation of physicists in the United States who then went on to train their uh, students. So his influence uh, in the field, just in terms of teaching, has been enormous, uh, probably the greatest of any teacher of his generation. The book is The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age. The author, David Schwartz, has joined us for the hour. David Schwartz, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow. We're talking about, we have the panel who recently presented a uh, provocative uh, uh, panel titled, Are Students Snowflakes? And uh, the question has to do with the tension between the value we place on free speech on campus and the interest we have in defending students against speech whose primary aim is to incite hatred and division. Of course, this has uh, uh, implications for the broader community as well. Hope you'll join us. Our student snowflakes will assemble the panel tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Next time on Ask Me Another, actor and writer of the YA series, The Land of Stories, Chris Colfer, joins us to talk about his toughest editor to date, his grandma. And if she liked it, she'd put it in a pile on her table, but if she didn't like it, she'd crumble it up in front of me, toss it in the trash can, and say, Christopher, you can do better. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.